But I don't, I really don't have any regrets. I really don't. I've, I've lived exactly how I've wanted to. I've tried my hardest every single time. I didn't win the matches that maybe I should have always won. Or, but I really gave it my all. So that for me is enough. Hi everybody, welcome back to The Body Surf. I'm James. I'm Jonathan. We're a bit late. Apologies. Totally my fault. Not really. Yes, still your fault in terms of <laughs> when we had initially planned to have the episode, but it's still Monday, the day mm. after. I Sometimes I think I'm not suited to this medium because I need some time to digest, reflect. Yesterday I would have not been in a good place to record, and the product would have suffered. I would agree with that. Yes, sure. <laughs> yeah. As to whether that will be an acceptable excuse for the listeners, that's up to them. Uh, exactly. Let's also not discount the fact that I, I don't know what your excuse is because I watched like 15 times more tennis than you did mm -hmm. over the last two weeks. I was exhausted. I was exhausted from a week ago and I'm still not quite there yet. Right. I don't think I've lost as much sleep over tennis as I have this last it's, fortnight. It's going to take some time to reset that, uh, that biological clock. When Rafa was clearly losing that final, I don't know how you stayed awake the whole time. Because I would have taken my ass to bed after about four games. Yeah, but then you're staying in bed and you're like, well, well, let me see if, if something different's happened. You know, <laughs> if there's been a, a shifting in the winds mm. and then you just can't really fall I, asleep. I don't have that problem. Oh. So 2019 has started with much of the same. With Naomi Osaka winning a second consecutive major, Novak Djokovic winning a third consecutive for the third time in his career and sets up a possible Nole Slam part two. Mm -hmm. He finished one in 2016 and he's back again. It looks better than ever. Better than ever for sure. <laughs> I mean, that was some kind of beatdown that he inflicted on Nadal. Right. Especially considering the form Rafa was in going into that final, I, I thought Rafa was the favorite to win. Well, we were misguided. <laughs> Clearly. To, to anybody who thought that that was going to be the case, they were misguided. We'll get to the men's part a little bit later mm. on. We'll start with the woman. Let's talk about our new world number one, Naomi Osaka. I remember thinking at the US Open that, wow, her rise is so much faster than we anticipated. Her rise through the rankings, becoming a top player, winning majors, that has even, my opinion has changed since then. I'm, I'm not surprised anymore, but the fact that she has asserted herself as the dominant force in women's tennis now is crazy. For me, it's not so much that she's winning. We saw signs throughout the fall that she was able to steady herself and not have letdowns after the U.S. Open and play well in Asia. Mm -hmm. So I, I didn't have fears of a regression per se. What I'm most impressed with, set aside the winning, is how she's winning. Because she won, what, four three-set matches. She was able to troubleshoot some seriously uh, sticky situations throughout this tournament, not the least of which in the final, when she was up, what, 5-2 or 5-3 and held match points mm -hmm. on Petra's serve and ended up losing five, four or five games in a row to lose a set. And being able to, to troubleshoot that and reset to get back on solid footing in the third set, that's incredible. That's right. the most impressive that is, part. It's a very mature attitude. She went off court, 
gathered herself, evidently, and it was like the second set didn't happen. In press, she was asked about that that sequence, about being emotional at the end of the second set and how she was able to, to steal herself. And she said, quote, I just thought to myself that this is my second time playing a final. I can't really act entitled. To be playing against one of the best players in the world, to lose a set, and suddenly think that I'm so much better than her, that isn't a possibility. And, you know, I've been in press conferences. We've all watched press conferences as fans and folks following Grand Slam tennis. I'm used to the the athlete speak, the the platitudes, the the tropes, like all these kind of circuitous responses that athletes give. And even when we consider them to be insightful, they're for the most part just rehashed. You are hearing a lot of the same things in different ways. It's rare that we get to see somebody give us insight that is so granular in relation to their their psyche and their thinking within the course of a match Mm -hmm. and so when i heard that from her i was i was floored honestly (laughs) watching it my my jaw dropped was like what like this is this is crazy and for her to have had that self-awareness in that moment dealing with the emotions of collapsing in the second set that it speaks volumes to the the mental makeup of this young woman right Something I'm always interested in when I'm attending tennis tournaments, when I get to ask a player a question is, how did you think through this match? Like, what what was your mental process to, you know, come back after that second set and figure it out? And so many athletes are hesitant to reveal. Either they're hesitant or they're just, it's just not that deep for them. You know, you can ask this question a million times and get a terrible answer, but Naomi is almost too revealing. I see. I I I, push back against it again. You say that all the mm, time. I'm not saying it's a bad thing. But two as a qualifier is has a negative connotation. What is it detrimental? What what about her being too revealing is detrimental to her? Well, it's not so far. What what (laughs) could it? What do you foresee? What okay? What I don't like is when Naomi comes off court and she is depressed and she's saying. I just, I don't know how to win anymore. I'm sad. We saw this earlier this month, right? That to me is like, I don't think it's a competitive advantage to to say that stuff out loud. But what do I know? Because she just won the Australian Open. As she becomes the woman to beat, do players seize upon that? See, I read that as her being able to, to work out her own emotions and taking herself through therapy. And so, quite frankly... Screw all the other players. What are they going to do? If she's able to use that as a way of strengthening herself, that's separate and apart from what anybody else can do to her. Mm. Like if she's using that to get herself in a good headspace and emotional space, then that can only be a benefit as far as I'm concerned. As far as the quote you read uh, about Petra, Naomi, it's, it's interesting because other players might take the stance that I am the best. I should be winning this match, therefore I'm going to win. Mm-hmm. That's kind of the, the, that was the talk we got from Venus and Serena when they were very young, when they were teenagers and young 20s. They looked at every single match, no matter who it was, and said, I'm the best player out here, like in the world, I should win this. And so when they gathered themselves in a third set, that's, that was the approach. With Naomi, rather than kind of beating herself up, she's saying, look at this, this is Petra Kvitova. She's won Wimbledon twice. Her best is incredible. Why should I be upset that I lost that set? 
it's fascinating to me what motivates. Mm-hmm. Well, to your point earlier, it could become, she may have to rethink that mentality when she's a four-time, five-time slam right, winner. Right, when okay. she is clearly the best, right? I'll, I'll grant that. <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm not saying it's a bad thing. I, I, this is why I want to hear athletes speak honestly, because personally, I am fascinated never having been in the heat of battle like that. What are you thinking? How, like, how do you do it? Well, we know your response would be to smash a racket and fling it against the wall or something. (laughs) The ball kids would be ducking for for cover. Oh, really? (laughs) But with Naomi, it and that comparison that you just made with the Williams sisters, it's we're seeing two different ways to go about doing things, two different ways to wear being a champion, Mm -hmm. right? And it's doubly fascinating because Naomi is often compared to Serena. And part of the rub on her from a lot of her detractors is how she is different from Serena. Almost as if she's kind of like a knockoff model. And also that she doesn't have that killer instinct. And it's, it's great to have those two methods on display. It doesn't have to be one or the other. Mm. And should Serena continue her comeback and continue to improve, it's inevitable that these two could have a year or so of just some wild mad encounters right like that that is that is the matchup that it's gonna hopefully dominate women's tennis for the next 12 to 18 months and personally i'm glad we didn't get to have it here because i felt it was important to truly put the u.s open to rest or at least attempt to those two needn't not play Mm. at this tournament I thought that could have sparked riots in the Twitter streets. (laughs) Uh, And quite frankly, even before the injury that happened to Serena, it it was likely that Naomi would have won that match, especially with Serena having to play back-to-back after the quarterfinals. Right. So... And appearing tired after the Hallett match. Yeah. It's... Uh, I mean, it's going to be a long road for Serena. She's been back not, not even a year... She's made two Grand Slam finals, a quarterfinal. She is clearly still not in her peak physical condition. I don't know if she will get back to it. Maybe it's just a matter of time, but she's not as quick as she was. And we're just going to have to accept that for now. This is reality. You're jumping the gun there a little bit. Okay. We're still talking about the final. We are. And let's pivot to Petra Kvitova because nobody has won more tournaments than she has since the start of 2018. Mm-hmm. This was, she's won six titles. Right, she's currently holding six. She performed poorly in the majors last year and just put that narrative to bed immediately in January. Petra looked scary good throughout the first, what, six rounds of this tournament. She was blasting through players. She had a much easier run than Naomi did getting up to this. It seemed like Petra maybe needed to have an easier go of it, but it didn't seem that she was hampered physically at all. By the heat, you know, a lot of people were saying the heat and humidity down there is going to kill her. She seemed really, like, fitter than I've seen her. She did benefit from a bit of luck with the weather. Because right. for much of the second week, uh, it was it was more temperate weather in Melbourne. Mm-hmm. And then even in that semifinal against Danielle Collins, she had the roof closed in, right. in the first set, which and could only benefit her. I mean, Petra indoors. It's, mm-hmm. it's practically like Novak Djokovic indoors. But she did face some a few players who were on a roll. Yeah, she didn't Ash have Barty. an easy path. No, no, no. She beat Anisimova after she just destroyed Sabalenka, and then mm-hmm. she had to beat Ash Barty, the home favorite. In the quarterfinals. 
Then she had to beat Danielle Collins, who was just destroying seated players, didn't let Kerber breathe for the, the whole 50 minutes it took to beat her. And Petra handled it. It was a tight first set. It was surprisingly quiet, I thought. I thought there was going to be a lot of screaming and squawking between the two of them. And it was pretty uh, l- relatively low-key. Naomi had a few come-ons in that first set. Oh, I was talking about Danielle and Petra. Oh, okay. Yeah. But getting to the final. Mm-hmm. Petra, as far as as great a result as this was, it must feel like a missed opportunity. Because she had so many breakpoint chances in that first set to to get ahead. And neither player, I don't believe, was broken in the first set. So with it being decided in a tiebreak, you would think, shy of some serious nerves coming into play, that Petra would have been able to to take that first set had she secured some of those breakpoints. Mm-hmm. She had love 40 at one point and didn't win that game. Right. It wasn't until the second set when Naomi was up 5-3 that Petra really put her foot down and Naomi had some serious nerve issues. Yeah, and we see with Petra against a lot of right-handed players that sliding serve on the ad court out wide was impossible for Naomi in the first set. She A bunch of times she just turned to her box and laughed. She didn't know what to do. You know, you move too far to the left and you're opening up the down the tee serve. She just couldn't make it in time. The commentators were saying, you know, she needs to develop a backhand slice return like we all did facing Martina. She started to figure it out as the match went on and things got a bit easier. It was like watching Serena in Cincinnati last year, Mm -hmm. except Naomi won this match. Right. Because Serena had serious trouble with Petra in that first set against Mm -hmm. Kvitova. And we watched that match live. And then toward the, the middle part of that second set, she started to figure it out. Right. It's absurd to think where Petra is now as opposed to where she was two years ago. Two years ago, with the the knife attack, the home invasion, not knowing if she'd ever play tennis again, to then now holding six titles and being back in a Grand Slam final, and a few points here or there from being number one for the first time in her career. It's a stunning achievement. And uh, these two in the final, a banner result for women's tennis. It was. It, It felt very right. It felt like the best players of the Fortnite made the final. They both acquitted themselves well in that match. It was down to really a few points, right? 6-4 in the third set. The other sets were really tight. I You said something earlier about Naomi maybe not having killer instinct, or at least not uh, kind of exuding that. In finals, Naomi is an absolute killer. She's heartless, right? She Somehow she just instinctively knows what to do in finals. Well, she told us in that press conference that part of what she had resolved to do after that emotional end to the second set was to set aside her emotions. She said she was like a robot on court. She was not doing the commands as much in the third set, if at all, until the very end, because she felt, I'm just going to put that all to the wayside and trust my training and just go for my shots. Mm -hmm. And it worked for her. The net result of her play over the last 12 months has been what you said that she's a killer in these finals in these big moments but i think she's still within those finals trying to figure out how to do it right she's been able to do it but i don't think she's arrived at a point yet within herself where she knows that this is who i am going to be in these moments Mm -hmm. it's just that she has incredible instincts great self-awareness a tremendous game and a whole bunch of tools and wherewithal to be able to troubleshoot those situations. Right. And it's really, I think we said it at the U.S. Open too, 
her fitness and movement have allowed this to come true. Yes. Like, she is an incredible striker of the ball, but there are a lot of women who are, who are just can't scramble, can't scurry around like she can now. And she didn't always have that. We, we'll get to some of the the previous matches in the second week now that we've covered the final. Mm. To your point, in that semifinal against Pliskova, Karolina attempted to wrong-foot her in ways, in a similar way that she did to Serena in the quarterfinal. And it didn't work because Naomi was not as slow in changing directions. Like her, mm-hmm. her movement was so much better than Serena in this tournament and against Pliskova. If you compare the two of them playing Pliskova, it was night and day in terms of the movement. And that was one specific way in which Naomi was able to bring something to the table against Pliskova that Serena wasn't able to, I thought. Well, to be fair, Serena was about to win the match. Yes, absolutely. (laughs) Absolutely. And uh, Pliskova's movement has gotten a lot better. Yeah. It really has. And I'm not happy about it. Pliskova's movement has been better for a while. Mm. I mean... That she has this reputation of being a, a, a robot and just leaden-footed on the court. But she's definitely a different player now. Yes. Than that image that we have of her. The Plishko-bot image, mm-hmm. not bending her knees, that sort of thing. The match against Serena, we have to talk about it. It, uh, As a fan, it's taking me a long time to get over it. That night I was just like, well, you know, sometimes shit happens. Uh, what what are you going to do, right? The footfall call was unfortunate. Do I think it was malicious? No. Do I think it was a footfall? I have no idea. The U.S. commentators were reviewing the tape over and over, and they were very skeptical that it was. I don't know. I, I You know, the angle was terrible. The point is, after the footfall, she sort of lunged for a ball that was out of play. She was about... She was going to lose a point anyway, Changing, over, di- changing directions yeah. again awkwardly. Mm. Rolled over that ankle, and that's all she wrote. I don't think we can talk about the Pliskova match without talking about the injury. However, you know, Serena had several more match points, didn't convert, didn't win, I think, a single point on her serve no. after the injury. This is alarming, right? This is not a typical choke. This is... I Like, I don't know what was going through her head. You know, was it... Well, now I know I'm injured. I can't play tomorrow. That's what Patrick said, right? Subconsciously, she wasn't willing to fight. I don't necessarily believe that. No, because she fought on those match points. Right. They played quite a few good long points on those match points, Mm -hmm. and Pliskova just came up with the goods. And I think by the end of it, you know, Serena was in okay spirits in her press conference, and she's handcuffed now, right? Because she's had these moments at the U.S. Open, which are etched in memory, which people will bring up at every turn, what can she possibly say? She she has to say, my opponent played better than I did. She's going to be ripped apart. I mean, I believe that, that that's what she would have said, regardless. Serena but, in maybe 2008 would not have said that. Okay. But with the context of the U.S. Open, you're right, she is mm-hmm. handcuffed in terms of what she can say. Right. She was calm on court. She didn't really argue any calls. Obviously, there were no racket smashes or anything. When she would have been well in her rights to be upset and felt uh, hard done by, by, by fate, right? Like, it wasn't anyone's fault. It was just an accident, and it sucks. But I would be mad. It's incredibly bad luck, <laughs> is what it is. Yeah. Especially, you know, she's a player who, when she was trying to get to number 18, she's thinking, how many more chances do I have at this? I'm in my mid-30s. 
now she's 37 and she's thinking, how many more chances do I have and how many more do I want? If she wants more kids, if she wants to spend more time with her daughter, how long does she want to pursue 24? That is that is such a Stan perspective. <laughs> Y'all are it out is. here just fighting against father time and projecting all these things onto Serena and what she could or could not be thinking. Mm-hmm. Okay. With the fear, the overarching fear being how much longer do you have her? Sure. Mm-hmm. But, you know, there's a kernel of truth in that she doesn't look really happy to be out there, in my opinion. This looks more like a slog, like it's it's a box that a box that she needs to check for herself. And that's fine. Like this is her job, this is her legacy. You don't have to be smiling and laughing when you're on court. I just hope that she is doing it for her. I think that if Serena were in better physical shape, this would this would come easier for her and mm. and allow her to have more quote unquote fun on court. Right. Look, this is this is one tournament removed, one slam removed from the US Open. There's so much coverage, eyes, focus on her and just her demeanor alone on court, let alone her play. Everything about her at this point is dissected so much mm. that that in and of itself I imagine would make it difficult for her to find any enjoyment on court. Right. When you have to be constantly aware how the littlest thing that you do on court can be taken to then inflame a situation that you felt that you probably didn't have anything to do with in the first place. You feel like you're constantly being put upon by all these bad luck, terrible calls, decisions that's affecting your place in history. Mm -hmm. But then you have to deal with the the fallout from that on a day-to-day, week-to-week basis. And so you, you just don't have the luxury of showing up in a quarterfinal match, a hell of a first-round match, and be like, I'm going to have a good time. Right. You know, it's, That's true. there's part of it, too. Like, she tells us all the time about how much she's missing being with Olympia and how it's, it's tough being a working mom and every time that she's on the court and practicing that it's time that she's missing out that she'll never get back. Yes, that, that we take that at face value from her. But there's also so much more to the Serena experience mm. that we don't know the totality of that will affect how she gives of herself on court outside of just the tennis. Right. She wouldn't be playing if she didn't enjoy it on some level. I can't imagine. I suppose. I mean, it's a lot of work. <laughs> yes. A lot of our listeners want us to drag Danielle Collins. Have, <laughs> have you heard this? I, I've seen things. Yeah. People, man, people are primed to hate Danielle Collins. And I gotta say, unless she comes out as a Make America Great Againer, I am, uh, I'm totally fine. Totally cool with Danielle Collins. Totally? Totally. I'm hoping that she's part of the 47% who did not vote for Trump. Mm. (laughs) People are skeptical because she worked with Ryan Harrison's father. As a coach. Still does. And I believe she still does. But he, but he works for IMG, to be fair. And she's not a, a superstar yet. So she doesn't have all the money in the world to go shopping for coaches. We don't know the nature of know. their relationship. I will take responsibility in pointing that out, that relationship, as far as maybe fanning some flames against her. <laughs> but like it needed to be said. All right. But like you're not they, the only one who's ever 
mention that. No, you know. But like specific, for my own conscience here, I don't want to be a, a hypocrite saying, "Oh well, we shouldn't. We should hold hold or horses with regards to Daniel <laughs> Collins." When I've de- I've said this, oh, okay. you know. Okay. Point I'm, being, I'm just there's saying... that, but there is there's time to make a decision. I understand that people are skeptical of white American tennis players these days in these streets. It is it is tough. It's better to err on the side of caution. Mm-hmm. But there's a lot to like about her on court, I think. I don't I really don't care about the screaming and and the come oning and just she's, screaming in players' faces. I don't, you don't, you don't I care really about don't care. Mm-hmm. How could I be sanctimonious as a Serena fan? Really? Right. Like how you know, how could I Say that with a straight face. There's screaming, and then there's screaming at your opponent. Right. When you drop shot somebody and they miss, and you scream, come on, right in Angelique Kerber's face. Sure. It didn't look great. And against my better judgment, I watched it over and over and laughed. There's <laughs> that thing with Vico in, in Stanford, oh, yeah. San Jose last year. I feel that she's maybe just awkward. Like, Vika retired and really hurt her wrist and was crying. And Danielle kind of went over... And like shoved her hand in her face for a handshake. And Vika was like, dude, are you serious? And then Danielle just kind of walked away. So she's clearly not very comfortable with the camaraderie. (laughs) What about the Sasha Vickery thing? Oh, that was just bad. Uh, Sasha has gotten into it with more than one player, though. I'm not saying that it's her Mm. fault. I'm just Mm. obviously Collins is aggressive and in her words, feisty. She is going to rub a lot of people the wrong way. Listen, I think that it's it's a clear red flag and warning signal when a player is out here telling you, essentially, I don't give a fuck what anybody else says. I'm going to stand alone in my truth. <laughs> I am an island and I don't need you. I don't need to get off this island. Mm. I'm self-sufficient. It, you know, I'm not here to make friends. Exactly. <laughs> like whenever we get that. But you think that's a red from flag? From a player? Yes, absolutely. Well, Okay. Because people for whom it's not a red flag don't need to tell you. Mm. They don't need to wear it as a badge of honor. They just go about their business and do their thing. And they truly don't give a shit about what anybody else thinks. (laughs) Which, as we know, can be an asset and a liability. It can, yeah. But when you're out here saying, I'm Danielle Collins, and I just don't give a fuck. (laughs) Like, that's something that gives me pause. Like you said, though, there is a lot to like. I'm just unable to get enough of her laugh. (laughs) it's actors should study her laugh in when when maniacal laughter is called upon Mm. in a scene danielle collins is what you should go to like for inspiration she could play jafar in aladdin (laughs) i like it i'm I'm just saying she did some karaoke to whitney cool she did that is cool and not the most obvious song either still bodyguard I'm just saying, if you're, she had, you're if hoping she, from like an album cut from uh, maybe I'm just her saying, second if album. If she'd come out with some "My Love Is Your Love" stuff, then we could we could okay. really talk about I that mean, stuff. She is white oh, still, okay. so you, you can't ask okay. too much. I'm just saying, she has a jewelry line. Apparently, mm-hmm. our friend on Instagram, Philip, keeps us abreast of all the Danielle Collins news. <laughs> You're not going to get a full-on condemnation from us here. No. You're just going to get, uh, you know, keep her at a distance, keep your eye on her, and see where it goes. Uh, from me. Maybe you are far more... Uh, yeah. I, I'm holding, obviously, but I was... At this Australian Open, after Serena lost, I was all for chaos. You and, wanted her to win. And Danielle Collins, to me, 
at this tournament represented chaos. Okay. Other folks who made up part of the quarterfinal cast on the women's side, Ash Barty made her first ever slam quarterfinal. Unfortunately for her, losing fairly easily 6-1-6-4 to Petra. Elena Svitolina, she lost to Naomi 6-4-6-1. And then Pavlyuchenkova had that match within her grasp before losing 2-6-7-5-6-1 to Danielle Collins. I made a mistake in the last episode. So Sloan and Pavlyuchenkova played in the fourth round. Pavs beat her this time. Sloan beat her in China, not the U.S. Open last fall. But Pavlyuchenkova is one of those players who can go out in the first round. She can make a slam quarter. She's done it before. Ash Barty, on the other hand, I feel has made a real breakthrough. And to do this at home is a pretty big deal to me. Svitolina kind of struggled through the tournament, had a, a, you know, a pretty good first two rounds, but then that gem's life caught up to her in the <laughs> third and fourth rounds, having to win three set matches uh, and then being beaten pretty easily by Naomi in the quarterfinals. Mm. Yeah, I thought that was going to be more of a battle, really. Mm. I think if you were looking for Svelina to take that next step, which she is probably the next player on the list of, you know, well... When are you going to go a little bit further? Right. You know, right. she's made a bunch of quarterfinals at this point. Did it again here, matched her result from 2018, but didn't really look like a threat at all, Mm-mm. truly. And I think she's possibly in danger of having the game kind of, the Grand Slam game pass her by. Maybe it's, that's a bit harsh. To me, it's it's perplexing because the women play best of three everywhere. She gets a day off in between. She's beaten everybody and anybody. And so she's made three Grand Slam quarterfinals at this point. But compared to her performances in other tournaments, it's, like, shocking. Mm. I, I don't have anything else to add, really, yeah. there. On to the men. You had mentioned before that there was a lot of talk that this could be a different kind of result for the Rafale, uh rivalry because of how well Rafa had played. There was a lot of talk about the changes he's made on serve. I was blown away by his performance against Tsitsipas in the mm-hmm. semifinal. The, I mean, allowing just six games. Novak followed up the next day by losing only four games to Luca Pui. And so that that sheen on Rafa was a little bit negated by just how well Novak was playing. And it cast more doubt than I had after his semifinal match against Tsitsipas. But still, what I saw in that final was not what I expected at all. No. Novak also only had to play a set and a half against Nishikori. His quarters and semis were easy, boring, breezy. And it turned out the final was too. What, what is really to say about the final? The, the time on court didn't really make a difference, I don't think, because Rafa was fresh as well. Rafa had steamrolled everybody going into that final. Right. Hadn't been broken since the first match of the tournament against James Duckworth. Held for, what, 66 times in a row? And you just knew, I knew that it was going to happen right away in the final. Like, I, I was prepared for that, that that streak was untenable against Novak. And right away, mm-hmm. he was down two love, then three love. It was like, okay, that's out of the way. The streak is over. Now we can get down to business. What was surprising to me was that Rafa was unsettled the entire match. It is an absolute truth that Novak played some of the best tennis you'll ever see him play. Rafa was at a loss for how quickly and how deeply the ball was coming back to him at every turn. Mm. You know, that is true. But there were moments within that match 
for as much as it was a blowout through a set and a half, it was still only one break between them. 6-3 in the first set, one break, and they were in serve in the second set, and he just kept thinking, well, if Rafa can get his teeth into one of Novak's service games, he lost one or two points all set on serve mm. in the first set. If Rafa could find a way to make a little bit of a dent, then maybe the tide could turn. But in those moments where Rafa did have chances, we saw some nervy, uncharacteristic play that while he in his press conference said that it wasn't about nerves, that it was entirely to do with how well Novak was playing, I don't buy that per se. (laughs) Because there were moments at net in particular where Rafa had plays on balls to win points and he made the wrong choice every time. And that's where I thought that the match became a mental battle where it could have gone a little bit closer in the middle of that second set. Because if Rafa had made better choices in those moments, perhaps he could have been able to to calm himself a little bit to make better choices on court. Mm. You mentioned before the match that you think that, especially on hard court, that Novak is really in Rafa's head. Mm -hmm. Rafa is one of the most mentally tough players probably ever, as is Novak, but their head-to-head lately has been lopsided, especially on hardcourt where Novak exposes basically every weakness that Rafa has. He mentioned that due to the long layoff, he didn't feel like he had a lot of reserves mentally. Like he didn't know how to elevate his game to challenge Novak in this match. The big difference for Rafa in this match compared to how he played for the rest of the tournament was we saw like maybe and probably not even five times where he went down the line. The forehand down the line is something that has to happen for Rafa Mm. to win in these matches. There were so many points where you're watching and I'm like pointing, I'm pointing to down the line. I'm like, there's your moment, go down the line. (laughs) And Rafa could not pull that trigger. And I don't know what the, the, the mentality of that is for him in those moments that allows him to make different choices against Nole as opposed to other players. Rafa will tell you that it's absolutely to do with Nole's play, but I I can't understand why through three sets we didn't see that play come out of the tool bag a little bit. Mm. Or at all, really. Right. And the other thing that was striking for me watching that match was Nole made him look slow at points. Made him look uncertain in his foot movement and just kind of not playing with clarity at all. And... To my mind, that absolutely has to do with some baggage that Rafa is bringing with him to that matchup against Mm. Nole. That said, Rafa had an incredible tournament. For somebody who hadn't played any matches since the US Open, who had to retire at the Australian Open last year because of injury, who was injured again at the US Open, for him to get to the final and play as well as he did to that point, that has to be a positive that he takes with him from this tournament. I can only hope, selfishly as a fan, that this, this matchup and this bad loss in the final is not something that he carries with him to Clay and the rest of the, the season. Because we saw Rafa push Novak deep into a fifth set, 10-8 at Wimbledon. That's not something that on paper should have happened. Right. This is, I hope, an anomaly for him mentally, and he's able to just put that behind him. Clearly, Novak is now shooting for the record books. He said that he's going for Rogers 20, I don't see any reason why he can't get it <laughs> if he stay, he sustains even a level of play close to this. 
It doesn't have to be this dominant, but he can get it. It would be smart for him to look past Rafa 17 and just keep going. As a Rafa fan, it, if you're considering the numbers, the all-time great numbers, the Australian Open is really a shit tournament at this point. <laughs> right. Five, five finals. Four, four losses. Mm-hmm. There's a stand match. There's all these unfortunate things that happened to him in Australia. There's being up a break in the fifth set against Federer. There's that six-hour slugfest against Djokovic. There's just a lot of uh, things he'd probably rather forget. Mm-hmm. Novak, on the other hand, wins number seven. In Australia. Serena has done it, but no man had. What we're seeing now is each of the big three have their spot. Like I absolutely rebuke this idea of Rafa as a, a clay court specialist because we've seen him now make hardcourt finals and win hardcourt tournaments in the last two to three years. Rafa has 11 on clay. Federer has, what, eight or nine on grass? Mm. Novak has seven at the Australian Open. They each have one tournament that is their stomping ground, right? So it is, to me, disingenuous, given all that Rafa has done on other surfaces, to then peg him and ding him for his success on clay relative to other players right? at their own success at individual tournaments. The thing going for Novak is that hard courts are the dominant surface in tennis in the 21st century. So, you know, people like to play these games where, well, take away that player's dominant surface and see how they match up. It doesn't make sense. You know, you're not going to take away the U.S. Open and the Australian Open and then say, okay, how is he now? It makes no sense. And I want to put a moratorium on the GOAT conversation for now because there's just, I feel so little enjoyment of men's tennis among the the real partisans. There's gloating. Oh my God, <laughs> like so when, much gloating. When your fave wins, there's gloating. But where is the perspective? And there... I can see, like, you know, proponents of women's tennis say, God, look at those men's quarters and semis and tell me that men's tennis is more entertaining. And I get it. But there's also people who are saying, we are so lucky to have this top three for so long. Why can't we just enjoy it? while it lasts we've said both right, uh, right. and I, I don't even know which is correct i mean to me this this men's tournament was totally uninteresting but that's me like i'm not a novak diehard right but i don't think there's any argument to say that the semis and finals were were good viewing they weren't that doesn't make novak's accomplishment any less no because he was phenomenal in right. this event and the, the thing that i push back against now though and I have zero time for it in my life. This idea that one specific member of the big three is doping. I see this repeatedly right. now. And it's, it's so disgusting to me. Because if you can make that argument for one, you can make that argument for all of them. <laughs> right. Every last it's, one of them. It's purely anecdotal. It's this player is playing really well. And for these reasons, based on all these conditions, I think they're doping. This person is too old to play this well, or this person is uh, taking all these injury layoffs, and those are clearly silent bans. These are all purely anecdotal reasoning, right? There is no good faith behind it. No. You can make the argument for Novak, Rafa, or Roger that you think they're all performance enhancing, but it is reckless, it's irresponsible, because how many of these people have actually played sports at a high level or have studied medicine? That said, 
Do I believe that there is doping at the highest level of tennis on both tours? Absolutely. Probably. I think we'd be short-sighted and, frankly, stupid not to mm -hmm. think it. Where it becomes reckless is when you're pointing fingers without fact. Right. If and when somebody does get proven to have doped along the way, then we can have that conversation. Right. But like the history of elite professional sport tells us across all sports that there have been players along the way to cheat the system, if you want to call it that, or find an advantage in some way within the rules mm -hmm. that might still be viewed unsavory. Right. That and there are so many varying levels of doping that it's not just somebody going to see a doctor or getting TUEs that they won't explain, you know, or being wrapped up in Balco. <laughs> you know, right. it's, it's not as cut and dry. It may be taking a supplement that is not banned yet. Exactly. Like we saw with meldonium. It's not as sinister as you think because it was not on the banned list until 2016. That is a conversation that we can have when the time comes. Mm. Until then, it's reckless, it's irresponsible, like you said. And really, it just poisons the well, truly, for everybody. Right. And the gloating, it's it's too much. <laughs> it's just too yeah. much. Like, celebrate your fave winning. Like, how much... Of my goodwill toward Nole fans, must I just put by the wayside in this moment? Because when he was going through things just a year ago, you know, mm -hmm. it was like, oh my God, don't worry, guys. Like, he's been great before. He'll be great That's again. That's what we said. Yeah. Yes. Just, just push through it, blah, blah, blah. And now three in a row now. And it's like, what, what are you doing? Honestly. That's that's how I think about it. It, it just it's very dispiriting to me. Uh, it's distasteful, is what it is. We keep being asked, "What about the next gen? Are they gonna are they gonna break out? Who's gonna be the next one to do it?" We saw a lot of folks put their hand up this tournament. Francis Tiafoe made his first quarterfinal. Uh, Stefano Tsitsipas took out Federer, made the semifinals, and then got walloped by Nadal. Just absolutely walloped. <laughs> he was left dizzied. It after that match, it left him a shell of a man. It left him in the, in the press conference questioning his existence. He's like, I don't understand anything. I don't understand. How did this happen? If I beat Roger and Rafa is able to beat Roger, then why can't I play better against Rafa? I, this doesn't make any sense to me. He was like Albert Camus looking at the world, the universe, and laughing at the absurdity of it all. He was looking at the senselessness of life. In the semis, we said Nadal beat Tsitsipas and Djokovic beat Puy. Talk about looking like idiots. Well, me specifically. I said that Puy was going to have a horrible year. He's just going to fall, <laughs> fall off the face of the earth. And lo and behold. <laughs> right. I don't know how you could do Emily like that. It was, it was a moment of unzen for me. <laughs> In the quarters, Nadal beats Tiafo, 6-3, 6-4, 6-2. Djokovic beats Nishikori 6-1-4-1. That match never got off the ground. Nishikori looked like he was hobbled from before he even took the court. Yeah. After playing all those five-set matches, it was it was a non-starter. That match was done and dusted before mm -hmm. it even began. Pui beats Raonic, which was one of the more impressive performances of this tournament, yes, I thought. Because Raonic was really on a roll, beat Sasha Zverev very convincingly. The first two sets took less than an hour mm -hmm. in that match. And then he won the third 7-6. Bautista Agut finally lost in 2019. He was on a... 
think, a nine-match winning streak. Mm-hmm. That was a big win for Tsitsipas, being able to follow up the win over Federer with another big win mm-hmm. in the quarterfinals. That's, that's, that can only augur well for him, and that's probably why he was so devastated as well in the semifinal, because he was able to push through that quarterfinal, score a big win, and then be steam, steamrolled by Rafa mm-hmm. in the semis. In doubles, Sam Stozer won her first Australian Open title with Zhang Shuai, beating Babos Mladenovic in the final in straight sets. Stozer has now won three majors in women's doubles. She's won three majors in mixed doubles. Sam could actually complete the career slam if she won Wimbledon in women's doubles. She's been a runner-up three times. Good for her for being able to do this in Australia after being lambasted for years Mm -hmm. for her, you know, poor results in singles in Australia. But now we have a singles Grand Slam champion who beat Serena Williams in a final, who's added six more majors in doubles and mixed. That's seven majors. Like, she is kind of a shoo-in for the Hall of Fame. And also making another Slam final. Right. Oh, at the French Open. Yeah. Which she was favored to win. Yep. On the men's side, the Frenchies won. They beat Continent and Piers in straight sets. And they have completed the career Grand Slam in doubles. Mm -hmm. They've actually won a major every year since 2015, except for 2017 when they won Davis Cup. In mixed doubles, Rajiv Ram and Krejcikova beats Sharman Smith. They won like $56 for their troubles. Damn shame. And they have to endure Jack Sock shitting all over doubles. Jack Sock, Jack Sock winning majors in doubles at will, dominating whenever he wants to in doubles. Number two saying, ranked doubles player in the saying, world. But saying, if I don't if I don't excel in singles, I just want to quit. Like, well, do it, because you got a reciprocal wild card for the Australian Open, lost in the first round. Your shitty attitude, like, you can take it with you. Don't I, let the door hit you. Okay. You're exceptional at something in life. You make well over a million dollars doing that one thing in life. Mm-hmm. And it's a problem. Like, come on. <laughs> just just stop. <laughs> I think this brings to a wrap all the, the actual tennis stuff. Mm-hmm. The results and whatnot. We're going to get into a few etceteras. Some big picture stuff. Some fuckery. Yeah. I was watching... The women's semis, I think, and Bethany Maddox-Sands was talking about encountering Serena Williams in the locker room post-loss. She didn't reveal a whole lot, but she said Serena and Venus were kind of huddled in a corner, and Serena was clearly upset about the loss. And I just have to ask, why is what happens in the locker room not sacred? And to me, this is the problem with having active players as commentators because they have demonstrated in the past that they don't understand what the line is. As a player, I think you assume what happens in the locker room is private. Mm -hmm. You know, I I mean, players, people might see you naked, for example. They're not going to talk about that. We'll get to that because Dan McEnroe will. But what happens in the locker room could be a very private moment. But Maria Sharapova writes a book about it, writes a whole chapter about Serena was broken and sobbing after she lost Wimbledon. Bethany Maddox-Sands was not as uh, descriptive, but why? just why? I, I have, it just strikes me as so unprofessional. My question here and why it becomes seedy for me is, if you're Serena in that moment, you're in the locker room, you're in, around the corner with Venus, she's consoling you in this moment, do you have a reasonable expectation as a player that when you look over or your shoulder and you see Bethany Maddox, that she's not going to go on TV the next day and talk about it? 
that you should be thinking mm. in that moment in the locker room after this incredible loss and tragic moment in your career that you should be you should again we just talked about how she has been policing her right. behavior right. for the public all the time that she should then be like well damn there's that snitch over oh, there the, right but this is how incestuous tennis is right because you look over and it's like oh that's uh so-and-so who's married to that person's coach and they're a commentator but they also work for img and the usta and they also have a contract with the itf and like all of these <laughs> potentialities they have to think through again bethany didn't reveal anything that was incredibly alarming you know it wasn't necessarily mm. what she said it's just the whole process of it and the conflicts of interest again and the expectancy of privacy that I think that that player should be afforded in the locker room right. that was violated for me. And I, I do not, I don't accept that. Also, I think if you are going to be a commentator and that is a kind of a journalistic role, you need to have like a basic understanding of journalistic principles before you do it. Well, there's that truth team. You noticed a particularly troubling train of thought in the commentator box while I was asleep one night during Francis Tiafo's match. You know, I'm just there minding my own business in the middle of the night watching Tiafo play Rafa. And on that call was Patrick McEnroe. And so, my, to be honest, like it, I was kind of looking for it in a sense. <laughs> not, not overtly. I was like, I, I can see how this could go wrong mm. because I know the narratives that are already pre-spun before this match. It's the same thing we saw with Tsitsipas and Federer that the young guys coming here for a beating, blah, 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 blah. With that framework already set, the, the, the commentator, in this case, McEnroe, has to find other ways to fill, fill in that narrative mm-hmm. during this beatdown, right? And it was also the first time that I really watched a full TFO match in a big setting. I've always kind of been in and out. And I was curious, as an American player being called by American commentators what they would say about him and how they would talk about this burgeoning young black man who really should be the face of men's tennis going forward in America because he is the highest ranked of them. (laughs) And he's also one that they haven't been talking about over the last couple of years Mm -hmm. in comparison to some of the other lesser ranked (laughs) non-black American players. You know, there's just a lot of fraught stuff that I felt could bubble over. And so McEnroe very early on says, Tiafo has phenomenal genetics, but is learning to become a true professional. He's got that twitch in his muscle where he's very quick, he's explosive, but that's something that he's not using to his full advantage. He's not ready to pounce, to jump to the ball. <laughs> no. And, um, and, okay, I can understand as like a lay person hearing this and, and thinking those are compliments. Right, like you're complimenting his athletic ability, his prowess. Mm. Part of part of being an athlete is being naturally gifted, right? The problem is that black athletes have been talked about like this for centuries in in colonial and post-colonial countries. The real coded buzzword in there is twitch. And genetics. Right. The fast twitch muscles that people of African descent apparently have. Mm -hmm. So when black athletes play at an elite level, commentators become experts in genetics, in anthropology. They seem to understand 
the human genome better than any scientist. And this is something that is steeped in decades of history. This is something that racists at the time sought scientific evidence to, to prove why black people were achieving at a higher rate athletically, especially in track, than white people. Like, there's documented right. sociological evidence of this. I mean, this is birthed from the 19th century British imperialism in Africa, trying to find ways to codify and classify African people as being genetically different. Studying their skulls, studying their bones, to say, well, th right. this is why. Like, like, it, it can't be because they've trained more or they're intelligent beings. It's because they're just genetically. This is where the use of the word genetics becomes particularly troubling. Because they're genetically predisposed to be better. They just need to, like, you know, run a little bit to activate that magic. Right. And in a culture where the Protestant work ethic is it, when you're measured by how hard you work, then you can discount the achievements of athletes of African descent because, well, they're just naturally like that. Mm -hmm. They didn't even have to try, right? They didn't have to use their brain. And so that's where the difference is. The lack of black quarterbacks, uh, the way we talked about Serena and Venus when they were younger, as not great tacticians, but as natural athletes who just went out there and bashed the ball. Are we talking about Jack Sox genetics? Right. We're not. Clearly, when, there are a lot of white athletes who are genetically gifted. Why did he say genetics and not talent? You know, we, talk, mm. we afford white players talent, but we give black players genetics. Right. <laughs> and I'm sure there will be people who are saying we're making too big of a deal of it, but like, there's just too much history to not. You have Google Scholar at your disposal. <laughs> Go to your search engine, put in Google Scholar, and then search these these keywords. It's all there. Like this is something I've studied in school. You know, there's a field of academic study about this stuff. It's not being made up. Then McEnroe goes on to say Francis Tiafoe didn't have to worry about those things in the juniors. His natural ability was better than anybody else's for the most part. He didn't have to worry about, you know, working hard mm. and putting in the hard yards because he could just get by on his talent. Take note, young players out there. Make adjustments. Don't be stubborn. Part of being a tennis player is figuring out how to solve problems. And this is McEnroe telling us how Tiafo has been unable to solve problems within the match, whereas Rafa has. Because Rafa was able to adjust his position on return and that was something that McEnroe was harping on from the start of the match, mm. that Tiafo wasn't making any adjustments on return within the match. Yeah, I feel like there's a few things going on here because the American commentators, the McEnroes especially, are very uncharitable to lower-ranked players in general, regardless yes. of their race. Mm -hmm. A lot of it is like, these guys are scrubs, they're journeymen, they haven't risen to this level because they just, they don't have it. Well, like they don't got it specifically right? John McEnroe because he doesn't watch tennis. Well, exactly. So he's he has to rely. Of, he's literally never. Heard he has to rely people. on these these tropes mm -hmm. to get get him through the right. couple hours. So there's, McEnroe, there's that. No, but McEnroe is the former head of the Which? UCTA. Patrick. Patrick. Yes. Yeah, Patrick. He's worked with these guys. Right, but sometimes these commentators talk about players outside of the top fifty like they're absolute trash, like they just rolled in. 
The other thing going on is that so many players, even elite players, don't learn how to troubleshoot until later in their career. That's a mm -hmm. maturity thing, right? That's not something that's unique to TFO. There might be kernels of truth in that. There also might be the argument that TFO has learned to overcome some of his janky-looking strokes, <laughs> right? Like, his technique is not one that you teach in the academies, but he has made it work. At the time I had tweeted, McEnroe's got genetics and fast twitch muscles. All that's left to complete the race science holy trinity is to comment on his intelligence. Extra points if he does it in comparison to a white player. And what did he do? <laughs> he then went on to compare Tiafo's lack of troubleshooting to Rafa's troubleshooting right. in that match. It was so disappointing, and it, it came on the back of just a terrible two weeks for commentators on court, in the booth, all over. It was, mm. it was just a bloodbath of fuckery the entire two weeks. <laughs> and you and I have been talking about when I listen to commentary, I'm hoping to learn something. Mm -hmm. Like, there's a lot about tennis that I don't know, right? And, and that I want to know about technique, about tactics, about all this stuff that happens on court that some commentators are very, very good at. Lindsay Davenport, for one. Martina Navratilova is another. Darren Cahill. Darren Cahill. But as far as the ESPN team, like, you need to invest in a greater diversity of commentators. Maybe former players who were never ranked number one, but who got by on skill and grit and guts. I I'd like to hear from them. The other McEnroe. After Nadal beats Tsitsipas, John McEnroe interviews him on court. And I, I, again, I just could not believe what I was watching and listening to. This is like this moments, was, I'm halfway yeah. asleep, moments away from bed, 5 a.m. in the morning, just jolted awake by the ridiculousness of the situation. This was like an episode of The Office UK version. It was so cringy. See, what happened well, was... The Australian Open was in the midst of one of their 35-minute long on-court interviews with a male player. John McEnroe asked Rafa, well, it wasn't really much of a question. It was just, I happened to see you in the locker room during the match, and you were completely naked. Rafa took... And that was the question. <laughs> and Rafa took a break, presumably between sets, to change his clothes, mm -hmm. and somehow... McEnroe was like, yeah, I, I, needed to, I needed to use the bathroom as well. And I was in there and I saw you and you were just naked. And up, he was apparently setting up this, this interaction that Rafa's body is so impressive and that McEnroe would love to have it, I guess. Uh, Rafa was... Have it in which way? Uh, stop. No, because that's part of the problem here. Right? It's, right. it's very homosocial, right? It's like this obsession with male bodies that I don't think is gay. It's just weird. And Rafa was uh, very graceful in the moment and quick-witted. And he said, what was your impression? And then, of course, McEnroe went on and on and on. It was incredibly awkward. Like, why are we talking about Rafa's naked body? Again, like, things happen in the locker room that obviously you shouldn't share uh, on court. Like, do you think that in that moment, Rafa has, what, three minutes to change his clothes, get completely changed? He looks up and he says, oh, there's John. Hey, John. And then... Like, an hour and a half later, John's going to tell the whole world that right. he saw him naked. And we're going to have a little bit of a, a chit-chat about it. I, it's, it's, it's wild. I realize that we have 
participated in objectifying men's bodies mm-hmm. on this podcast Absolutely. before. Yes. This is... There's a time and a place. There's no excuse for it. I'm, I'm not asking you to forgive or overlook what we've done, but this is beyond the pale, right? And he's also a professional with an audience of, like, many millions. I, I don't even know how to respond to that. <laughs> what? <laughs> uh, yeah, we are unpaid podcasters <laughs> <laughs> trying to, like, stay afloat here and right. keep this thing going. Who occasionally have inconsistencies in our uh, moral and ethical outlook. Or Is are that just, fair? Or just thirsty. Mike Monroe's not even thirsty. <laughs> right, right. He's not even quenching any thirst. He's just being <laughs> a dick. <laughs> But for me, this is just yet another instance of just how piss poor he is at his many jobs in tennis. It's mind-blowing to me. And also, I would like folks to keep this in mind for the next time somebody pops off about gays or women in the men's locker room. Like, you know, you have female reporters in NFL and NBA locker rooms. You have men's men's tennis players talking about, well, okay, gays are okay as long as they're respectful. Was McEnroe mm-hmm. respectful in yeah. that moment? I don't think so. <laughs> like, do you think any gay person in that... I'm going to use Nick McCarvel as the most obvious point of comparison here. Do you think if Nick McCarvel had to go take a, a bathroom break and had to interview Rafa at the end of that match, he would even dream of saying something like that, yeah. knowing the stakes for him as an openly gay commentator mm-hmm. in tennis? I know. That is wild. Mm-hmm. It is just beyond the pale... And I've just had it to the limits with these two McEnroe brothers. I think, no, but I think at this point, ESPN is like, they know the criticisms and they don't care because I think they feel people are hate watching now. It is 2019. Hate watching is a thing. Hmm. Let's talk about the unseen ways in which the ATP man spreads on the mm-hmm. WTA. I touched on it briefly. The on-court interviews at this Australian Open were incredibly long and tedious that rafa interview by itself was about nine or ten minutes long what do you like these players have just given of themselves there are a lot of responsibilities that come with being a player they have to go to press afterward they probably have to do spanish press after that like let them go let the crowd go too and we've seen how bad they've been at this (laughs) tournament in years past there have been some good Mm -hmm. ones like jim courier is probably the best at it that's something that's he is been, very good. Yeah, that's been repeated a lot. Sam Smith had a horrible. I, to, I don't think we mentioned this on the previous episode, but Sam Smith tried to goad Serena into talking shit about Yastremska, which was just the most bizarre interaction. And Serena hit back at it, saying, "No, I, you know, I think she did a fine job. Like she came out here and, and competed." And Sam sort of scoffed and was like, "Oh, okay." Meanwhile, had most... Serena said something like right. a little bit off color in response to that total shit question, <laughs> the shit storm that Serena would have gotten for that. It was the most bizarre interaction. There's so many landmines lurking at every mm. corner for these top players that they have to navigate with respect to people mm. working in tennis who are so unqualified and unprepared for the jobs at hand. The disproportionate way in which the, the athletes and the, the media in tennis have to prepare for their work. It's galling. And this isn't true for everybody who works in media, but we've, we've seen so many high-profile <laughs> and repeated examples of this that it's, it's, it's just too, too much. Right. I think it's more 
more true for like the personalities versus the actual journalists working? Mm. I'm, I'm too too tired and sick of it to even contemplate that <laughs> right now. But, but with this specific instance, I'm referencing the eight-minute on-court interview with Tsitsipas after he had won, I believe it was the Bautista Gut match. And in that session, it was a day session, in that session, Daniel Collins was coming up next. And then there was another women's match to start the night session. That match had already gone longer. You know, the writing was on the wall that things could be a little bit tight on Rod Laver Arena here. But they went to unimaginable lengths to celebrate Tsitsipas in his breakout tournament. And then when Danielle Collins scores, at that point, the biggest win of her career, she gets ushered off the court in a hurry to say, oh, well, we got to go. We got to prepare for the next session. <laughs> I, uh, because at that point, mm-hmm. the night session was delayed by at least right. half an hour. Uh, yet, Muguruza and Joanna Conta in their second round match went on court when? 12-15? Mm-hmm. That they could have moved them to another court. Supposedly, the Margaret Court Arena staff had already been sent home. Like, you need to do better. Like, you're the Australian Open. What is the importance of having those eight minutes as opposed to three with Tsitsipas in that moment? to inconvenience the rest of the woman's order of play in that way. Other than you just don't care or have any regard for how you operate as the men's tennis in relation to women's tennis. You know, my point in, in talking about this is we talk about, you know, equal prize money as the biggest issue with respect to men's and women's tennis and the discrepancy in how they're treated, right? Mm. But I want folks to think about when they're watching tennis or they're at tennis matches, think about the minutia, the small ways in which men's tennis encroaches upon women's tennis. And this is where I think the analogy of manspreading comes into play because you're in public transit and there are two seats. A man is sitting there and a woman is sitting there, but the man doesn't think anything of opening his legs a little bit wider and taking away those extra three inches because what do you need them for? Mm. My legs are longer, blah, 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 blah. Like, this is what this was. There was no... If somebody is there, if there's an ombudsman, a tennis commissioner, somebody who is keeping abreast and oversight over all these things, they can have the foresight to say, well, look, listen, we need to wrap this up because we've got... These women have stuff to do. They've got to go to work. But instead, we're having a la-di-da moment on court with Tsitsipas. I think your metaphor of manspreading is apt. For the record, it's because men have balls. That's why they manspread. That, oh, that's the argument. These must be like softballs. <laughs> <laughs> Pardon the vulgarity. <laughs> but I, I myself, have been trying to get a seat on, on a public transit and like, like, dude, get the fuck out of the way. What is the excuse? But... The ATP was not interested in the WTA in 1971. They're not interested in 1985. They're not interested now. And you see throughout history, the ATP has taken steps to undermine their female counterparts. This is not in our imagination. Read tennis history. Mm -hmm. But say Sam Smith or Jim Kerr is doing that interview. That's not being monitored by the ATP. Right. This is a structural systemic issue across all professional tennis. ITF, commentators, everything. It's not just the mm-hmm. ATP. But 
we know from being at joint events, joint event being Cincinnati, and also hearing from folks within tennis that joint events become a problem right. for the WTA right. because wh- whether it be pre-tournament press availabilities, the actual space that's given for these availabilities to happen, like the amount of time that's allotted for these interviews, there's so many things behind the scenes that the WTA is treated as like, well, if we get to it. <laughs> yes, the WTA is like, gets the what left. Mm-hmm. And this is where I take specific issue with this article that Sam Groth wrote that's been recycled, this Australian Open, saying, you know, I'm going to tell you, you know, what the real issue is here with equal prize money. You know, it's not just that, you know, five sets, three sets, this or that, the, the stuff that people are talking about. It's about the WTA investing in its stars. It's about the WTA doing this for their own product. The ATP, while they've been very lucky with, you know, the big three, big four, and that may change, they've still taken steps to brand themselves with the next gen and all these people who are coming up, and the WTA just has not. <laughs> well, you know what, Sam Growth? Like, where are your next gen in compared to the WTA? Like, the WTA, Danielle Collins was ranked 30-something, made her way to the semifinal. That could have been any number of, like, mm-hmm. 20 women on the WTA who made that run. Let's talk about WTA next gen. Naomi Osaka is the number one player in the world. Exactly. And has won two majors in a row. Exactly. No shade, but what has Alexandra Zverev done mm-hmm. in comparison? And are you giving Naomi Osaka eight minutes on court after her interview? Mm-hmm. Or are you just going to froth over Tsitsipas and other people? Fro- no, but that's what that it is. Verb no, but that's, that's what it is. <laughs> Like, you're making it seem so simple that the WTA has not invested in these players. And there's legitimate critiques to be had about the WTA sure. and like getting its product out there and you know the mess that we went mm. through with streaming and WTA, WTA TV and all this other stuff. That stuff is legitimate. But to present it as a black and white issue, as a WTA not just doing enough, when we know and we can see all the ways in which the WTA is disadvantaged by the way that the ATP man spreads on them and the way that viewers man spread on them by saying, oh, like, can this match be over so I can get to the real thing? <laughs> by the way in which, like, structurally from, you know, youth sport, college sport, at every level, that women's sport is taken as second class to begin with. Hmm. You know, the structural inequalities from before birth that women have to deal with before they become professional athletes. How about we consider all of those before you come and try and, you know, preach the doctrine from the mount about how the WTA is just inadequate in promoting Mm. its stars. That's all I'm going to say. But to be fair, female models make a lot more than male models. (laughs) I'm so sorry. I had to bring up one of the stupidest lines of argument in the history of the world from from our fave, Rafael Nadal. Just a total shit show. <laughs> now that Naomi Osaka is a two-time Grand Slam champion, she's a superstar, she's a moneymaker. She's already made $10 million <laughs> in prize money. Her racial identity is fraught. Mm-hmm. Uh, right? A, a lot of groups want to claim her. Japanese culture is, is having already a, a, bumpy, a bumpy go of it. Which is not in any way surprising. <laughs> 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 right. For you know, from the little that we know about 
Japanese identity, it, for the past many centuries, it's been fairly homogeneous mm -hmm. racially. I don't mean that as a criticism. That's just a reality, right? Japanese it makes me question here. You say homogeneous, I say homo homogenous. <laughs> I'd never seen that. I think it's homogeneous. Oh, really? <laughs> well, anyway, there we have it. The uh, the wrangling over Naomi's racial identity is is ongoing. It puts her in a very weird position. There's so many things at play here, from how Naomi herself identifies, separate and apart from who she represents professionally as an athlete. Mm. A very simple thing like if she were to fill out a form, say she wants to go to school and apply for student loans, what's she going to take for her ethnicity? If you're going to school in the States, the Americans, they're very nosy. They need to know that. <laughs> yes, they do. Does she take, does she, you know, check African-American? Does she check Asian? Does she check other Haitian? That's, what does she... that's not a box. No. A Caribbean there... is not a box. You no, know, I like... think there is one note that says Car Car Caribbean somewhere. Really? And yeah, it's whatever. The point is. How does she herself identify in those situations, mm. separate and apart from who she is as a global superstar? Right? right, right. And that's not something that anybody has any right to project onto her or tell her what's right or wrong. No. Uh, this came to a head recently with the Nissan contract. They did this whole anime-inspired campaign centered around Naomi, and she was clearly a pale-skinned girl. She had been lactified. Lactified, indeed. Uh, and so, of course, she was asked about it. She said, I'm obviously tan, as kind of a joke. You know, a lot of black people in the U.S. took issue with that, calling herself tan. I mean, she has presented herself as who she is from the jump, right? She has identified as a black person, as someone with Haitian heritage. Like, clearly she is of African descent, and she hasn't shied away from that it's not something that she has hidden mm -hmm. i don't know what kids are saying these days about mixed race identification if tan is a thing if that's a new thing <laughs> or if it's an old thing it's not something it's not something that i'm necessarily familiar with mm -hmm. but i'm not gonna i didn't bat an eye <laughs> to... well, especially because she has in the past said that she's black mm -hmm. so like this one instance when she said tan it's like okay for me there, I give a lot of leeway to somebody like Naomi in the situation because there's no answer that you can give that will please everybody. She's chosen to represent Japan. Part of that reason was because the U.S. wasn't going to fuck with her. They weren't giving her money mm -hmm. as a youth right. athlete to develop her. So she went to Japan. Her mother's Japanese. She's literally half Japanese, right. half Haitian. She lived there as a baby for four years. She grew up in the U.S., her identity is multifaceted, mm -hmm. right? I totally understand that there are a, are a large group of people who want her to identify as this young woman from the first black republic in the world. Mm -hmm. But then there are also people who absolutely want you to mention every intersectionality in her identity. Right. And that one and championing one or being perceived to champion one over the others is not sufficient. So you're really not going to please everybody. My point here is you really have to pay attention to if she is negating or oppressing one part of her identity. 
as far as how her followers perceive her. Mm. You know, if she's saying like, well, I don't want to be seen as black, like take absolute issue with that. Right. But because she, then she the, has never said that. Yeah, because the the <laughs> the ramification of that is that she's saying that, you know, that's something to shy away from. That's not what's happening here. It's I want folks to understand that it's it's a very complex issue from her choosing who to represent and there are reasons for that to how she's seen. You know, in America, we know about the one drop rule. So like for a vast swath of Americans, like she's a black person. Right. Never mind her Asian features or the fact that, yes, she lived in America for a good part of her life, but her father is Haitian. You know, he's not Mm -hmm. African-American. So like people are claiming all these parts of her that she may not feel she's entitled to claim. Right. (laughs) It's a weird thing. And that, that is the history of mixed race people, especially in America. It's it's a place where you often feel on the outside. And I will quote more, many Mariah Carey lyrics here because she's sung about it extensively. You're on the outside. You're you're looking in. You're <laughs> never quite feeling the same as other people. Mm. And I don't mean to be glib about this, but when you're when you when your identity is wrapped up in a cloud of ambiguity that push pull pushes and pulls you in all different kinds of directions, we have to be sensitive in this day and age as as onlookers and fans and people working in the media or whatever to let people have their space to identify however they want to that's really what it boils down to right if they're not being offensive or or harmful to other people then let them do what they want to do you know it's it's a fraught thing like damn it was enough of a journey with beyonce <laughs> really but do you remember you know, for a while, she said, I'm Creole. My mm-hmm. mother is Creole. Tina is very light-skinned. She has different facets of her identity that she identifies with. She happens to express her racial identity differently now, mm-hmm. in 2019. Yeah, and people right? are allowed to evolve. Right. Naomi is walking into a minefield in Japan. Yes. If she wants to be a superstar in Japan... There, there are going to be struggles and there's going to be pain with what she's going to deal with as an African-descended mm. woman. And we've gotten glimpses of that from a friend of ours who is a black and Jamaican living mm. in Japan. And the experience of that over the years, because she's been living there over a decade now, I've seen and heard glimpses and it's it's not pretty. Right. So that that's not even something that folks mm. even consider really. That's but, the least of it. Folks aren't even considering how... Naomi is perceived as a person of color in Japan. Right. I feel like that's at the bottom of the ladder. <laughs> because navigating the United States post-colonial racial identity is hard enough. Mm-hmm. Now she has to navigate Hades and Japan's. And so for the second straight episode, or maybe the third, we are going to push this ATP board drama to another yeah. episode. Yeah, we're going to man-spread it the fuck out of here. <laughs> Start girl-spread it. <laughs> We're just running entirely too yeah. long, and it th- th- we wouldn't be doing it justice by getting into it right. now. It's we we were bought a little bit of time with the the vote being delayed until yeah. Indian long Wells. story short, they're not voting until Indian Wells. We'll fill you in before that. Mm-hmm. In the meantime, it was an eventful two weeks. I was so ready for Grand Slam tennis, and then by midweek. You're so of the glad first week, over. I so was glad. like, there's such a long road mm-hmm. ahead. 
the second that we stop recording this, I'm deleting that app off my phone. <laughs> How The app had a lot of good stuff, by the way. It did, yeah. It had all the press conferences, on-court interviews, etc. But guys, work with IBM again, because like... What was it? It was really just the PDFs and something. One other thing I saw, the PDFs of the draws. The draws and the live scores were a problem. All in all, the app wasn't that bad. No, I mean, live scores are really, and what I ended up doing, you go to Google, you type in Australian well, Open, and the scores are all there. But really, the, yeah. app, the app should be able to handle that, it, it since that is their raison d'etre. I understand. I'm just saying we can be a little bit more resourceful <laughs> in 2019, and that it's been a lot worse in years past. Yeah. True. Last year was worse. Thanks for listening. Thanks for waiting until Monday. Congrats to Naomi Osaka. What you're doing is, it's Mm jaw-dropping, truly. And uh, we feel lucky to have been on the ground floor, frankly, two (laughs) years ago in Charleston and spoken (sighs) to you before all this happened. (laughs) Yep. And uh, Congrats to Novak Djokovic, who is well on his way to becoming a goat. He is already a goat. Right. There are many goats. He's one of them. There are three goats. And we just won't know. Until everything is said and done. We don't know if that's even an argument that's even worthwhile wading into. (laughs) Thanks for listening. Uh, Feel free to give us a review on iTunes. We've had a few in the last couple weeks, and we so greatly appreciate them. Mm -hmm. As always, it's one of the tangible ways that you can help us with the show. Let people know what you think about the show, especially if you like it. (laughs) Not trying to solicit (laughs) one-star reviews here. So if you like the show and you have not reviewed yet, please go to iTunes, drop us a review. We appreciate it. You can find us on Instagram, at TheBodyServe. On Twitter, we are at TheBodyServe as well. My name is Jonathan. My personal Twitter is at Tennis underscore John. And I'm James. I'm at Elliot JMR. Till next time. Thank you. Thank you very much.